So we have been in this series called The New Man. And, and we're, we're continuing in this and looking at what happens at the time when somebody is born again. Remember, those are Jesus' words. These are not some churchy thing. This is not some doctrine adopted by the church back in 100 A.D. This is the words of Christ himself. This says, if you, for whoever believe in the Son of God will be born again. And that's the thing. It's the belief in, the trust in him. We say belief in faith. Faith is not some sort of mechanism. It is simply belief. It's trusting. That's what it is. But it's in him. And the problem we have today in a lot of the world is that there's been this adoption that is like, well, I believe in God, so therefore I must be okay. Or I'll get to heaven if I'm a good person. And that would be all well and good if that's what Jesus had said. He said, hey, if you'll be a good person and you'll go to church regularly, give to the poor, maybe help grandma across the street and bake cookies for your neighbors, then you'll be good to go. But that's not what he said. He said you have to be born again. And we had to look at the testimony, what that means, and we broke that down. That if you're in Christ, then you are a new creation. But the problem, he says, if you're in Christ, not that you are just somehow brought in through osmosis. Well, my grandma played the organ at church for 20 years, therefore I must be in Christ. Or I believe that there is a God. And we read this this morning in James 2, that even the demons believe that and they tremble. The belief that God exists does not make one person right with God. It's putting your hope and your trust in him. It's recognizing that I am a sinner. I have missed the mark. I am not right with God. Therefore, I need to get right with God. And there's only one way to do that. It is through the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And so because of that, we can be made a new creation through him. So when that old is gone and that new has come, we're not just rebuilding. We didn't break it down to the studs and then just put new drywall on it. It has been demolished, destroyed. It is dead. It died with Christ and then resurrected with him when he resurrected, right? These are not things that I'm just saying. We've gone through the Bible to look at this stuff, right? These are his words, not my words. So from that, once we recognize that, then we have to realize that he gave us a job. When he told his disciples, listen, I need you to go wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. But I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And then it talks about how we've been given the ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors of Christ. Ambassador meaning we're his representative. When people see us, they should see him. The question we should ask ourselves is that when people see us, do they see him? Because unfortunately, the answer a lot of times is no. Somebody made this statement, I don't know who it was, uh, it's a quote, that there are five Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you. And the problem that we have with that is that you may be the only one they ever read. And so am I exemplifying Christ in my conduct, in my, the words that I say, in my business, in my job? Which means sometimes we do things that we don't want to do, but we do them with a smile on our face, and we do it because we love the Lord and we do our work unto the Lord. So if I'm his ambassador, then I have to be going about doing what he did. And we looked at that. We got into the Old Testament. What was Jesus doing before he showed up on the earth? And we looked at when he showed up. That was Christmas Eve, if you remember, that all the things that had to come into fulfillment in order for him to be here and watch how that played out to the letter of how God said it would. And then ultimately, what did he do once he was here? And we explained the four Messianic miracles and how we, we looked at them. There were four things that the Jews said that if the Messiah comes, only he can perform these four miracles. They are cleansing a leper. They are casting out a deaf and dumb spirit. The healing of one with birth defects, blind from birth, lame from birth. And the raising of the dead after the third day, on day four. And as we go through these, the reason for this is leprosy was believed to be given by God. Therefore, only God could take it away. 
People were healed of other things, but they had to be cleansed by what would be the Messiah. And we saw Jesus do that. The casting out of the deaf and dumb spirit. Remember that the, the Jewish hierarchy would perform exorcisms, but the thing they would do is they would ask the demon its name. If it can't, a person can't speak and can't hear, they very well can't respond, right? It's kind of like your kids. So you think sometimes they're deaf, and most definitely they are dumb, right? All right. So there was a formula they had to do. So only the Messiah could do this because only he would have the authority to be able to perform such a function. And then healing somebody born with a birth defect. Again, they believed that somebody had sinned and therefore it was God's judgment upon that child. And we saw the man born blind and we watched the Pharisees question him. Like, are you sure you were born blind? As if you would mess that up, right? Like, oh, I forgot. No, you're right. I, I got it 10 years ago. My bad. You know, I mean, but they just couldn't believe it. And then, of course, the last one being raising somebody from the dead. The Jews believed that the spirit of a person stayed with the body for three days. But on day four, the body began to decompose and therefore could not come back. And thus, that only God himself could do that. And we saw that happen with Lazarus. We went through all of this. This is why Jesus was performing the specific miracles that he was performing. And there are more as far as him fulfilling prophecy that we didn't get into because for time's sake. But what do we know that Jesus' number one goal was? To destroy the works of the devil. That's what John tells us. He came to destroy the work of the devil. That was his purpose. And that work was sin. It was sin that caused death, sin, it's caused sickness, it's brought all of this stuff into the world. And because of that, he came to destroy it and take that from the midst of us. Thus, the new man is born. You guys following what I'm saying? You with me so far? Then the last week, we got in not only what Jesus did, because we looked at that, and we looked at how he did it, but, or, or why he did it, but how did he perform it? How was he able to perform these miracles? And that's where we brought in the concept of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And as we began to look at this, remember I told you there are three baptisms mentioned in the Bible. And it's important that we distinct this. When we think baptism, what do we think? We think water. You dunk them, you pull them up, that is good. For some people, that's all you got to do to get saved, right? If you're a little baby, you just pour a little water on them. Yep, they're good, they're going to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. That's a problem. Because if I teach you something that is contrary to Scripture, we got a problem because I'm wrong. Right? It doesn't matter who says it. It matters what God says about it. So, the word baptism simply means to immerse. And in a Jewish mind, when somebody was baptized, in other words, with water, they were basically aligning themselves with that individual. All right? So, we saw in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. That is that we are now one with him. When we are born again, we are now one with him. We are baptized, immersed in. We are aligning ourselves with Christ. But who performed it? It was the Holy Spirit. Specifically says that. Says it in other places as well, but that's the primary one we focused on. So that's baptism number one. And that's the most crucial of anything, is that we have to be born again. It's not just this get-out-of-jail-free card. There's no amount of work that we can do to make us right with God. It's all based on what he has done. But the second baptism is in water. And that is the one we're super familiar with. Why? Because we've all seen it. We've done it. We've experienced it. Um, you know, in, in some capacity or the other. If you ever watched the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Commandments, but some of the uh, church movies and stuff like that around Easter, somebody's getting baptized. It's just a rule. You have to have a good baptism in every good Christian movie. It's just the rules, okay? But who does that baptism? It's the disciples, not 
the disciples like those who followed Christ back then, but those who follow Christ today with water. The disciple baptizes with water. Who's a disciple of Christ? You, me, anybody who has now aligned themselves with Jesus is considered a disciple of Christ. And therefore, they are qualified to baptize somebody with water. You see that example with Philip. Philip was not an apostle. He was a deacon. Now, to deacon to us means a position in the church. Deacon to them was just a servant to the church. He was a place in a little bit higher authority, but it really didn't amount to a whole lot. It was basically to free up the time of the apostles. And so he went around doing miracles, and he baptized the Ethiopian servant. But, be that as it may, we see the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. We see the disciples baptized with water, but there's a third one. And it is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And we'll go back to the verses we look at last week here in a moment. But the bottom line is this. In all four Gospels, it accounts this. In all four Gospels, the only things that all four specifically talk about are the birth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and this thing. That He baptizes us in the Holy Spirit and with fire. He being Jesus. I can't spell. I'm all right. I went to public school from Nebraska. Remember, N stands for knowledge. Don't forget that. <laughs> or no way. No wins? I don't know. We got Scott Frost. We'll win again. Thus saith the Lord. We got nothing else to hope on. Anyway, I don't want to get sidetracked on that. We'd be here all day. But we see specifically mentioned, and we'll go to these verses in a moment, in all four Gospels, that Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The reason I'm making these distinctions is because some will say that at the time of your new birth, your born-again experience, that you are given the Holy Spirit, which is true. But that is it. There is nothing more past that. And what we began to examine is how that doesn't even make sense linguistically. From the grammar used in Scripture, that doesn't work. Because it specifically told us that the Holy Spirit baptized in the Christ. We know who baptized in the water. And it was very clear who's baptizing us in the Holy Spirit. Not with or of the Holy Spirit, but with the Holy Spirit. This immersion, this covering of power. Now, we see this mentioned in John chapter 1. And this is where we're going to begin today is John chapter 1, this is crucial to understand. This is John the Baptist speaking, verse 32. And John bore witness, saw, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. And he do not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Why does he say that? I've seen it and testify it. He is making a legal claim. I am an eyewitness to this. God told me that whoever the Holy Spirit comes upon and stays, that's the Messiah. And that happened with Jesus. The Holy Spirit would come upon people in the Old Testament, probably even at that time, probably was upon John in some capacity, but he would also live. He did not stay. That's why that was crucial. But who did it just tell us? It's he who will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. We know who he was. He was Jesus. So where do we get this idea that at the time of the new birth, when we are born again, that God gives us his Holy Spirit? Where does that even come from? 
If you ask most New Testament believers today in the church, they say, I don't actually know. They'll start scouring their New Testament to find it. Well, guess what? You won't find it there. Mentions of it, references to it, but it doesn't specifically say it. But we see it in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22, it says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. He is talking about, I am setting up this new covenant. He's making a promise to him. And he's not doing it for them, because they have made his name terrible. He's doing it for himself. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God. When I am hallowed in you before their eyes, I will take from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. You notice it doesn't say, I fixed your old one. I'll put a new one in you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and you will do them. Guys, this is where that happens. It's this idea that we are given the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to take out your old spirit. I'm going to give you a new one. Right? We get to start over. That's awesome. What most of us prefer is like, can you just take this old body and give us a new one? Preferably one with abs would be great, right? You know, I mean, we all know they're in there. They're just insulated. So, but, but he said, I'm going to give you this new spirit and I'm giving you my spirit. This is the concept where the Holy Spirit is within us. Is that what it said? Yes, it is. Absolutely. At the time of the new birth, the Holy Spirit is within us. But what's interesting about that is that when Jesus performed his miracles, he waited until the moment that the Holy Spirit came upon him and stayed. Now, why do you think that is? Was he not the Son of God before that moment? Of course he was. He was born the Son of God. He got a triumphal entry, right? You know, you got angels singing your name. You got shepherds showing up, kings from the east coming to check you out. I don't know about you, but nobody did that when I was born. Maybe they should have. Probably not, though. Yeah, that's right. Eventually. Well, I was born in Detroit, so by blood, I'm a Wolverine fan, but by choice, go Big Red. All right. But here's the thing, is he didn't do it until the Holy Spirit came upon him. Well, I wonder why that is. And then where do we get the idea that, that in the book of Acts, and that's where we're going to end up today, is when we see this whole baptism in the Holy Spirit thing fulfill itself, is that why do we think that when God promises the Holy Spirit that that's it? When he specifically says that Jesus will baptize us in the Holy Spirit. Not the same thing. So let's look at John chapter 20. Because what I'm going to contend to you today is that the infilling at our time of new birth, at our born again moment, and the baptism in the Holy Spirit are separate events. And I'm going to show you this again. This is coming from scripture. All right? This isn't some church doctrine. This isn't something that we just, hey, we kind of made this up. It makes us feel good. We like it because we're charismatic and we're wild and crazy. No, this is what the Bible says. And so we are going to stay in that framework. And John chapter 20 is where we're going to start. Now remember, this is right before Jesus is getting ready to ascend. He's about to get out of here. So he's kind of giving his last hoorah to the disciples. Listen, I got stuff for you all to do. Here's what I need from you. But look at this, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, when the doors were shut 
where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Why did he do that? Hey, in case you didn't know who I was, this is me. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Send you where? Send you to the work. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. In other words, there is a, an authority given to these disciples to go into this world and make more disciples, right? But he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, we're going to watch here in a minute in Acts chapter 2 where that Holy Spirit comes upon them. But why would they need that if, if, for, if it's the exact same thing? It doesn't make any sense, right? What we're seeing here is kind of a throwback to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and the creation account because God breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam, the Ruach, the spirit. We see it with Abram. When he changed his name from Abram to Abraham, he adds that sound, right, that really flimmy stuff that the Hebrews got. I can't do it very well. But that is the spirit of God being given to them at that moment. So Jesus here received the Holy Spirit. Well, let's read Acts chapter 1. Because this is going to give us a quick synopsis of what Jesus told them. Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, wait a minute. Who did he say you heard this from? He said, from me, Jesus. Who said it before? It's John the Baptist. All through the, all through the gospel. So apparently Jesus has told them this, right? So they didn't just hear it because they were standing there with him. You heard it from me. So not many days from now, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute. Well, didn't we just read where they received the Holy Spirit? I think we did because he breathed on them and he gave it to them. Let's go on. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, pause there for a moment. What are we associating? He just said, you've heard from me that the, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit by him, right? And with that comes what? Power. It's the same context, guys. These are not distinct statements. It's not the same thing. They've already received the Holy Spirit. This has to be talking about something else. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Remember, Samaria is the place where the Jews don't go. Because they were the half-Jews. They were the, the off so for them to do it, when Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman, that was a huge deal because your average Jews didn't do that. Doesn't make them right, but they didn't do it. Now, when we see this, why were they in Jerusalem? The Feast of Pentecost. They'd been there for uh, Passover. They stayed around because of the death of Jesus and all that was going on. But every male-bodied Jew that was able to do it had to come back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost as one of them. There were three. That was one of them. And that's what we're getting ready to do. Now, he had told them that you need to go in all the world and make disciples. But before he said that, you need to go and wait. Right? So he said, you heard this from me. Now, let's go through this quickly. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. This is John the Baptist speaking. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Who's he? He is Jesus. 
Mark 1.8, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Who's he? It's Jesus. Luke 3.16, John answers saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Who's he? Jesus. One more, John chapter 1, verse 33, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, he being Jesus. You think maybe they're trying to make a point? Here's the thing to think about. You have four different individuals writing these four different letters, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all written by such, Luke being a Gentile. It's not like they got together and like, okay, guys, let's put this in each of our letters to make a point. That is not what happened, and that's not how that worked. So there's something going on here outside of that new birth infilling of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus had already given that to them, and then he told them, you need to wait. Okay? You guys see what I'm saying? This is crucial. Because where we're going, this is, this is the foundation of which all of this is built upon. So, let's begin to look at this. We're going to go through the book of Acts today as quickly as I can, I promise. And I was going to attempt to get everything done this week, and I can't. So I apologize, but I'll pay for your gas to get here next week, okay? So, I make big promises and then I get real wordy. So, here we go. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. What was the day of Pentecost? Fifty days later, after the Passover, they were here. They had to come here and celebrate. Remember, these are all uh, Jewish feasts. They're all resulted around agriculture and the farming seasons. And this is during the summer. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Okay? Does it say that there's wind blowing? It does not. There's a sound going off, not wind blowing. I want to make that clear. Somebody sent me a book just this week. I started reading. It's like, man, I bet their hair was standing up. That's not what it says. Let's be careful. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Where were they? In this upper room. Remember how the Jewish, they had, they had a lower level of which they would keep animals in during the winter and at night keep people from snowing. They had their kitchen. They'd kind of hang out there. The upper room would be a big open room. Think of a loft. They have 120 people in there, okay? So it's crowded. All right. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what do we see? The Spirit coming upon them. And what happens in that moment? How did they know that the Spirit was upon them? Was it the sound? It was not the sound. It was the praying in tongues. Now, we're not going to get sidetracked into what praying in tongues is and all of that, at least not yet. I won't say we won't go there, but as of right now, that's not my plan. But nothing about this series has anything to do with my plans, because every time I think we're going one way, we go another. So, but the bottom line is this, and we're going to watch this tongue thing manifest itself, is that that's how they knew they began. This was the exemplifying of the Holy Spirit being upon them. There's something going on here. Remember, Jerusalem is packed. Every Jew that was able to make it to Jerusalem was required to be there by law. So you got people from all nations coming around. Now let's look in verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews who were devout men from every nation under heaven. So now we know why, right? It's Feast of Pentecost. They have to be there. And when this sound occurred, what sound? The wind, right? Whatever that sound is. The multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not the, all these who speak Galileans? 
And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Remember, they weren't all born in Jerusalem. They're born all over the place, but still Jewish because it's their ethnicity. So they're hearing these things going. They hear the wind, it draws them in, and then they hear them speaking in tongues. And they're like, wait a minute, we hear them saying the praises of God in our own language. And they make the statement, aren't these Galileans? Now, Galileans are your uneducated country bumpkins. Many of us qualify for that statement right there, right? We could be Galileans because we may not know how to do much, but we could spit in a cup and maybe fix a pickup, all right? But that's how they were looked upon. They were uneducated. They were a lower class. Everybody has that one city that they look down upon, you know. For me, growing up in Nebraska, it was Fall City. Right? You're like, oh, they eat their young over there. Like, you know, it just, it's not a good thing. Now, I'm not saying that really what happened, but that could be what happened. So, but they're all coming together. They're, they're like, wait a minute, how are they doing this? How are they speaking in all these languages when they're Galileans? They're not educated. Which tells us something. There are people that were educated in those multiple languages. Now, here comes the question. Were they speaking the language or were the people just hearing the tongues being translated in their own language? question is, I don't know. I don't care. Either way, it's supernatural. Because it's not like they had a one-on-one class with Jesus. Okay, I need, you to, I need you to speak a little different dialect of Hebrew. Can you throw a little French in there? How about some Espanol? That's one of the three Spanish words I know. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. It's giving you an idea where all these people are coming from. That is spread out and quite diverse. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Other mocking said, but... Others mocking said, these are drunk, right? They got to be drunk. I mean, what else can you say? They're up there, they're babbling in these languages, they got to be drunk. Suddenly, you, can, you know, apparently getting drunk is crucial to learning a foreign language, I guess. I don't, I don't know where they're going with that, but they're hearing them speak in tongues. They got to be drunk, right? Well, let's look what Peter says. Now, remember Peter. This is the same Peter who decided, denied Christ three times at the cross, once to a little girl. I mean, picture this little girl comes up to him like, aren't you a disciple of Jesus? He's like, no, no, not me. You got wrong, wrong guy. Sorry. That's my bad. You know, so here we go. Same Peter. But Peter standing up with the 11. So we got the 12 disciples here. Well, 11 at this point. Raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So what is he saying here? It's not impossible that they would be drunk, but the third hour of the day is like 9 a.m. He's like, it's a little early for that. The bars aren't even open yet, guys. Come on. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days. Now, when he says this is spoken by the prophet Joel, what is he telling us? That if he's using that for this moment, that that is being fulfilled in one way or another right now, right? Okay. It shall come to pass in the last days says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. What just happened? We watched the spirit be poured out on their flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see vision. Your old men will dream dreams. Okay? So this will give you an idea of where you are in the age gap. All right? Whether you're seeing visions or you're dreaming dreams. You're young or you're old. Okay? We'll leave it at that. My men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. What days? The last days. And they will prophesy. 
I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And what is that referring to? The return of Christ when judgment is going to come. But he calls these the last days. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? And whoever. In other words, it's not just Jew. It's whoever. And so he's making the claim that these are the last days. So if those were the last days, and we're still here, what does that make us? We're still in that time frame. We're still in the last days. We're a little bit closer to the last day, the, the great and awesome day of the Lord. But all of these things, that the prophecy and, and the wonders and stuff, how can that not be around anymore? If it was the last days then, it's got to still be the last days here. That means that stuff should still be happening, and it does. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. He's making a case for Jesus here. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, was David a prophet? Peter sure thinks so. And knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ. Remember, the Christ. Christ is not his last name. That's the Messiah, the anointed one. That he would raise up the Messiah to sit on his throne. Whose thrones? David's throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. What is a witness? One who saw it. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So this was the promise. Of the Holy Spirit that in Luke chapter 10 and Luke chapter 11 that Jesus is talking about. That hey, the pro it's better that I go from you. The promise of the Spirit from the Father was not the infilling. But it was the outer filling, if you will. Now here's a question. Did Jesus sit on David's throne when he was on the earth? No, he didn't. So that tells us for something. That there is going to be a time in which Jesus will. Because God cannot be wrong. It has to be fulfilled. Now let's go on, verse 34. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, both God and Messiah. He's here. Who crucified him? These are the Jews. Right? He's making a point. You killed the one that you've been waiting for for thousands of years. He proved it to you. He did the four miracles. The Pharisees inspected him and couldn't catch him in anything as much as they tried. Pilate washed his hands and said, I find no fault in this man. 
What was going on? He was brought into Jerusalem four days, just like the lambs were brought in before Passover. He was inspected and thoroughly looked upon and yet was without spot and without blemish. The Lamb of God has died. This is the Peter that denied Jesus to the little girl. This is bold. He is standing up in front of 3,000 plus people at this moment. Guys, there's a change that just took place in Peter. There's a boldness on him that wasn't there before. Because you don't deny Christ to a little girl and then get up and preach your first sermon like that. Right? Oh, man, it's good. Well, let's go on. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sin. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? We just saw this, right? We watched that happen. The Spirit came upon them. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Who's that promise to? It's to them. It was to their kids and pretty much everybody else. Right? There's no distinction. This is the first example that we see of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. Jesus has said, it's better that I go away because otherwise the Father can't send the Holy Spirit. Right? So we see these things connecting. Right? You see how this is working. The Holy Spirit coming upon them. Oh, my goodness. Did somebody move the clocks forward a little bit? Okay. Well, let's look at Acts chapter 8. Because there's five examples of this in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. And so what I want to do is I want to show you how these things broke down. So you can see this isn't something we're just throwing out there. I mean, this is what Jesus told his disciples was so important that they needed to wait for. Acts chapter 8, verse 9, we're dealing with a guy named Philip. Now watch this. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria. Where did Jesus say they would go? Judea, Samaria, okay. Claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. Now, what is he doing? Simon is performing something that is getting the people like, man, he's got to be something major. I mean, how else can he do all of this stuff? And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time, right? Whatever he's doing is working. And I don't think it was like card tricks. Ah, nothing up my sleeve. You know, none of that kind of stuff. Something is going on here. We saw in Egypt with the Pharaoh that, that the, the magicians of Pharaoh's court were able to perform some of the miracles that Moses had brought forth. So there is something that is going on here. We just don't know what. But watch what happens in verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Would that mean they were baptized in water or are they talking about this new birth? Could be either one, honestly. We don't know for sure. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs which are done. Now, wait a minute. Who the heck is Philip? In Acts 6, it talks about he's one of the seven Hellenistic Jews that are labeled as one of the, uh, the, the deacons. But who are the rest of them? It doesn't really mention the rest of them later on. And why is Philip anything important? Truth is, he's not anything important. He is a man who was full of the Holy Spirit doing the works of the Lord. The position doesn't matter. This gift wasn't just given to the apostles. It was given to all. Was Philip in the upper room with them? Possibly. We don't know. Right? We weren't there and they did not take, you know, role. So we don't know. Let's look at verse 14. Well, before we do that, what were they amazed by? What was Simon amazed by? 
the miracles and the signs. What miracles and signs was he doing? Very likely the same ones that Jesus was doing, right? Verse 14. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. So, it's getting back to Jerusalem. The apostles that were there, they heard that people had given their lives to Christ, right? That's essentially what we're saying. They sent Peter and John to them. And when they had come down, he prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute. Verse 16, as yet he had not fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute. They were already believers, right? Philip led them to Christ. So why did, why, why did they send Peter and John to lay hands on them? There's a distinction here, guys. You guys see this? It's not just me, right? I'm not just crazy. I mean, I'm, I'm a little crazy. But, but I mean, there, there's something distinct here. Because why didn't Philip just do this? He could have, honestly. But what do we see happen? They lay hands on them, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Do we see them speak with tongues here? No, we don't. Does that mean that they didn't do it? No, it doesn't. Just like it doesn't talk about them, what, you know, maybe after the service they went and grabbed lunch down at the local diner, right? It doesn't say that either, all right? But it doesn't specifically say it, so we'll leave it at that. But then we get into the life of Paul, who's a guy named Saul in Acts chapter 9, right? At this point, his name's Saul. Remember, Saul was there... When they killed uh, Stephen, thank you, I was going to say Seth, and I knew that wasn't right. Stephen, right, they stoned him. Stephen looks up, you see Jesus, he stands up from his throne and receives him. Paul's standing right there, his name's Saul, I'm going to try to use his correct name. Saul's standing right there, basically giving his blessing, like, yeah, I got, this is good, okay? This is not a good guy. Now watch what happens, chapter 9, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He didn't like these guys, the disciples of the Lord. These are not just the disciples, but all those who are born again. Went to the high priest and asked for letters from him uh, to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way. The way is now what we call Christian. Christian the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. Okay, Twice in Acts, once in 1 Peter. And it was a derogatory term. Followers of the way is the followers of Christ. Whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's on a hunt. He got permission from the high priest. The high priest is over all Judaism. He got letters from this. And when he goes to the synagogue of Damascus, if he finds anybody following Christ, that he can lock them up, chain them, and bring them to face the same thing that Stephen did, essentially. Verse 3. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. When did Saul persecute Jesus? He never persecuted Jesus. So why is Jesus a Satanist? He's persecuting the church. Remember in Ephesians 2, that Christ is the head, the church is his body. So he's persecuting Jesus. So he trembled and astonished, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. You think he believes that Jesus is who he says he was now? Oh, you better believe it. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but they didn't see the light. A little confusing, I'm sure. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he didn't see anything. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight. He neither ate nor he drank. I mean, this is a man seeking the Lord. Jesus now appeared to him. He is now a believer in Jesus. Any question about that? Absolutely not. You didn't think he was who he said he was on this earth. He shows up to you in a bright light and says, hey, knock it off. 
He suddenly believed. Verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Here's another new name that we hadn't seen before. The Lord said to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. He said, here I am, Lord. How did he say it? In a vision. So we having visions? Sure. Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. All right, Tarsus is where he's from. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. So is Saul getting visions? Yep. Ananias is having visions. Ananias answers, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. All right? Now, this is fair. Because Saul's out trying to get people killed, and Ananias doesn't want to play the game. Like, are you sure you got the right man, Lord? I mean, like, there's a lot of guys you could have chosen for this job that you want me to go see. Like, I'll go next door, and I'll, I'll go anywhere, but I don't want to go see Saul. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Right? And he does. All three. Never forget that. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Believe me when I say this, you don't want the calling of Paul on your life. And Ananias went his way and entered his house and laying his hands on him. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he rose and was baptized. And so when he had received food, he was strengthened, and then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. He laid his hands upon them, and the Holy Spirit fills him, right? Was he not a believer before Ananias got there? Yes, he was. The scales fall off. This pattern. So he laid hands on him. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. Did he say he prayed in tongues? No. But did he? We know he does. How do we know? He tells us in 1 Corinthians. The whole chapter 14 is making distinction of how he does it. And he says, I'm glad I pray in tongues more than all of you. Right? So did he do it? Absolutely. Where did he get the ability? Right there. Okay? Let's go on. Acts chapter 10. Now we're getting to a guy named Cornelius. Cornelius was a, 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 a servant in the Roman army. He was a leader. He wasn't even Jewish. He's a Gentile. But he feared God. Let's look at this. There was a certain man. In Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion that was called of the Italian regiment. Why is this being so specific? It's letting us know where he was from, what he was doing. This is a real man. In other words, if you wanted to and you had the time, you could probably go through history and trace this guy down. He was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to people and prayed to God always. Now, one thing I'll say here is these guys were paid really well, really, really well, sometimes nine to ten times your uh, uh, normal servant. Or soldier, excuse me. But he gave alms. He was constantly taking care of people. The giving of alms isn't just handing them money. You're meeting their needs. You may be giving them food, providing them. They may bring them into the house and feeding them. Okay? About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter, the same Peter from Acts 2. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius said, two of his household servants and devout soldiers from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to him, he sent them to Joppa. Where did Cornelius get his message? The angel appeared to him, right? 
So is it possible an angel can appear to somebody? Yep. Is it possible that they can have a vision from the Lord? Yep. Okay, we've seen it twice. Then the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. This is early in the morning. Then he became very hungry and he wanted to eat. Maybe like you right now, thinking, hey, if this guy would wrap it up, we'd go to lunch. All right, we're almost, we're getting there. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound in the four corners descending to him and let down onto the earth. Okay, so did he fall into some sort of a trance and see a vision? Yes, he did. Does that mean that people can do that? Sure. Does that mean that every time something like that would happen, it's from God or even real? Absolutely not. Let's move on. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Why is he making a statement? Because he's a Jew, and they did not eat unclean food, right? Pork, shellfish, anything like that. Uh, anything that was what, not what we would call kosher, okay? So he's sitting there like, ah, I ain't touching this. He probably thinks he's getting set up right now. Thinking, oh, good, Peter, you passed the test. Way to go, guy. But, and a voice spoke to him again saying, what God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven. Because the first time, apparently, Peter didn't get it. It had to happen three times. So in this moment, did God call all the foods clean and able to be consumed? Absolutely not. We'll see that later because this is not dealing with food. And you'll see that. Remember, context is key. We've got to keep that in mind. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, okay, so he's trying to figure out what's going on, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Who sent them? The Holy Spirit. How did Peter know they were sent from him? The Holy Spirit told him. Question, does the Holy Spirit speak to people? Yes, he does. Okay? Verse 22. No, excuse me, verse 21. Then Peter went down to the men and was sent him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear from your words. Now, pause there. Why are they saying he's a just man, he's respected by the Jews, he fears God? You think any Jew is going to go to a Roman soldier's house? For one thing, they can't because they're Gentile. For another thing, if you're getting invited to the guy who basically can hold your life in his hand, you're probably just better off steering clear. Verse 23, then he invited them in and they lodged with him. On the next day, Peter went up with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So Peter grabbed some, some of his buddies that were in the area and took him with them. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So he invited some people over. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and he worshipped him. Lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation, right? Because it was against the law. They could not do that because it made them unclean. They would have to go and mikvah and cleanse themselves because they were not the people of God. Verse 29. Therefore, oh, excuse me. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Where did he show them that? 
in that vision, right? So was he talking about food? No, he's talking about people. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? He doesn't even know. He just knew to go. So Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded to you by God. Oh, goody, right? Hey, Peter, you know you didn't know where you were coming. That's all great in here. Now you're here. Give us a sermon. No problem. Putting him on a spot. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Right? So we're getting another picture, a glimpse of what that vision was all about. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This is the word. This is going back to John the Baptist. We are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. In other words, hey, he's here, he's alive, he's doing well. Not to all the people, but to the witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Guess what, folks? You don't get to have lunch with dead people. It doesn't go well, and it's a little weird, okay? But he's making a case. God chose the witnesses. How many were there? There's over 500, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Over 500 saw him. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remissions of sin. Or you could say, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You could throw that in there because they're saying the exact same thing. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, all, upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, though that would be the Jews, who believed were astonished. And many as came with Peter because, why? The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Now wait a minute, that word gift gives us a clue, right? It was the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised. So we're watching this be fulfilled. How did they know that this happened? They're, Peter's preaching. He didn't pray for them. He didn't lay hands on them. They just see it happen. They're all shocked. They're all astonished. Why? Verse 46. For they heard them speaking with tongues and magnifying God. How did they know? They spoke with tongues. Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should, be, should not be baptized? Who have what? Received the Holy Spirit just as we have. We've got the same thing we've got. Is that referring to that Ezekiel 36? No, it's not. It's different. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, that they asked, and they asked him to stay a few days. So how did the Holy Spirit come upon them? He just fell on them. It's the same thing, right? Same thing. Let's go on, because let's look at Acts chapter 11 real quick. I know I'm going a little long. I promise I'm, I'm rushing. I'm almost there. Because Peter is going to tell this story, because he's going to go back to Jerusalem. 
And he's got to explain to all these other people what the heck just happened because this is wrong. Because they're astonished. What are they astonished by? The Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles. Now, wait a minute. This is the Jewish Messiah. What are you doing with all these non-Jewish people? Well, that was the promise to Abraham. Let's look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcisions, that's the Jews, contended with him, saying, you went into the uncircumcised men and ate with them? They're shocked, because you ain't supposed to do that. Okay? But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning. So he's going to go through this case, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, you ain't going to trick me. I got this. For nothing common or unclean is at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now, this was done three times, and all were drawn up to heaven, uh, again into heaven. And that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, was, having sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me. Who told them? The Holy Spirit. To go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me. So now we know how many he took. It took six. And we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house. And who said to him, send me to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you the words by which you all or your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Acts 2. Then I remember the word of the Lord. How he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Now hold on. This whole baptism in the Holy Spirit thing, he is now connecting it specifically. After we watched it take place, he's connecting it with the events that just happened in the previous chapter. Why? Because this isn't the same event. It's not the same thing of when we're infilled with the Holy Spirit. This has a purpose. It's secondary in the sense that it is not the exact same thing that happens. It does not have to be secondary that you have to wait six months and take three tests and study up before you do this. But we're watching it all connect. He's putting all the pieces together, telling us exactly what that was, was that John was talking about. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. This is he who will baptize in the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay, and then we also see that this is the very thing that has been going on from the beginning. And he's shocked. This is the Gentiles. They're not supposed to get this. So they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They got that exact same gift. Let's look at one more and then I'm done, I promise. Acts chapter 19. We're getting towards the end of the book of Acts. Remember, Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. First nine chapters is primarily dealing with Peter. After that, it's primarily dealing with Paul and all the works that they're doing. They're going around. They're building churches. They're, they're, they're reaching the lost. Here we go. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. Who are disciples? There are people who are already, you know, associated themselves with somebody. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And he said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Right? Sounds like most of our churches today, right? No? Nothing? Okay, I'm moving on. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. So John the Baptist baptized, which means what? We are now aligning ourselves with John and following his teachings. Well, what was his teachings? Let's go on. 
Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. Okay, so what was John's alignment? Hey, believe in that guy over there. That's the Messiah. Believe him. That's what matters. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That could be born again. It could be whatever you want to be there. But when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues, and they prophesied. We see it time and time again. Is it the same event? No, it's not, guys. This is why it's so important that we know our Bibles. This is why it's so important that we follow the patterns. Because if you look at the patterns, and we'll go through this more next week, I promise. And that's it, I, I swear, um, unless I'm wrong. But is that you had times where they laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. You had times where they were just standing there, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. With every account but two, they spoke in tongues or something else. They spoke in tongues and prophesied, spoke in tongues and magnified God. In Acts chapter 8, it doesn't say that they did or didn't. In Acts chapter 9, it doesn't say that Paul did, right? But we know that Paul did, so we can eliminate that one. So we're down to one. But if the pattern is the pattern, what do you do with it? So, guys, is there any question there is a distinction that's going on here? There's no way. There's just no way you cannot say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the promise that Jesus made of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And with that comes what? Power. Power for what? I'll come back next week. We'll talk about that. Okay?